six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. We bring the truth to places truth is never heard before. We bring the sound communication of our tribal war. Dark vision fly by helicopters in the night. Attempt triangulation of our station in the fight. Good afternoon and welcome to a public affair. My name is Tanya Brito and I'll be your host for the hour. Ali Muldrow is off this week. Today we're going to be talking about reproductive justice. The Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, the 1973 decision recognizing a constitutional right to privacy in a woman's decision to terminate a pregnancy during the pre-viability phase. The decision, Dobbs v. Jackson, Women's Health Organization, reversed 50 years of legal precedent. I'm going to be talking about this decision and the future of reproductive justice with co-dean and professor of law, Kim Mutcherson from Rutgers Law School in Camden. Dean Mutcherson is a national expert on reproductive justice and her scholarship focuses on that topic, but several others that are implicated in this topic, including bioethics, family and health law. She is the editor of the recently published volume entitled Feminist Judgments, Reproductive Justice, Rewritten Opinions, in tw- and, and that was published in 2020. And her Twitter handle is at Professor Much if you want to follow her there. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today, Kim. Thank it's you. A, Thanks for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure to have you. Um, I have to say when the uh, Dobbs decision was formally announced um, and I saw the headline in the paper on my phone, um, I was dumbstruck. I knew it was coming. We all knew it was coming. But still, it hit me like a pound of bricks. Um, talk, talk about how you responded when you learned of the decision. Yeah, it was it was really interesting. I happened to be at um, a, a conference for Black women law professors um, the day that the decision came down. And so on one hand, I was sur- surrounded by this you know, room full of joy um, uh, and all these folks who I, I love so deeply and dearly. Um, and then also wrestling with the reality of what this decision meant, particularly for Black women mm-hmm. um, in America. Um, and I think that for me, I mean, we had seen the leak already, so we sort of knew where the majority was going to go. But um, I think the the sort of cherry on top was that uh, Justice Thomas uh, felt compelled to share his own two cents as well, mm-hmm. um, which really sort of pushed me over the edge that day. Yeah, yeah. Um, why don't you start there with Justice Thomas's two cents? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, So, you know, Justice Thomas wrote a concurrence. He was part of the majority that decided that the Constitution does not, in fact, um, protect a right to uh, terminate a pregnancy. Um, But he wrote separately to make very clear that the rationale that undergirds not finding a right to privacy that extends to abortion in the Constitution can also be used for other rights that have been read into the Constitution. So, you know, anything that's an unenumerated right, so in other words, it's not actually written into the document, and there are lots of things that don't appear in the document. Um, And then he specifically pointed out a few cases. He pointed out Obergefell, which is the marriage equality case. He pointed out Lawrence versus Texas, which is a case that um, protects the right to same-sex sexual relationships. Um, And then he pointed out Griswold versus Connecticut, which protects uh, a married couple's right to use birth control, Mm -hmm. um, which I think, you know, most folks in America were not thinking that that was on the table. Um, So, you know, he really signaled an interest in having cases come up to the court that will allow them to revisit those decisions in particular. And to be clear, when I say revisit, I mean to send them back to the states Mm -hmm. um, so that we would have the same patchwork there as we do when it comes to abortion now. He did leave off one important Supreme Court decision from that list. Shockingly, Loving versus Virginia. And why is that? Why did he leave (laughs) off Loving versus Virginia? Because it has a very similar rationale. Yes, exactly. Um, So Loving versus Virginia, which is the case that um, made it that said that the, the that states could not ban interracial marriage, and to be more specific, that they couldn't ban marriages between white people and people of color, because that's what these laws did. Um, mm-hmm. That one he left off of his list of of things that are not enumerated in the Constitution, um, and yet it should have been there along yeah. with those others if that was the real rationale. That's certainly right. The history of United States at the time of the founders certainly were not was not permitting 
interracial marriage. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So what happens when I don't know, Alabama starts uh, uh, reinstituting its former anti-miscegenation laws and that case gets to the Supreme Court. Yeah. Uh, is he going to have to get divorced? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> okay. Um, so I want to um, <clears throat> uh, get your take on how vulnerable these earlier decisions are mm. following the Dobbs case. Um, I teach family law like you do, and mm-hmm. there have been some years as I revisit the curriculum and the reading assignments that I, I wondered, should we cover Griswold? Mm. Um, because I, you know, for, there was no threat there and you're you're making a lot of decisions as new areas, uh, new cases. So to to earn a spot on the syllabus, you you really need to fight for that. And and sometimes I would reconsider Griswold because contraception seemed a given, right? Um, How, how vulnerable do you think, you know, uh, same-sex marriages, um, you know, right to sexual privacy. Yeah, I, you know, I think that, so So the one thing that I should say, just in terms of my mindset at this point, um, is that I am not willing to take anything off of the table um, mm-hmm. in terms of what this court is willing to do or not do. Um, so I want to be really careful about that, because I think part of how um, a small part potentially, but part of how we find ourselves here is too many people saying it could never happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't want to be that person. I want to be cautious with that. Um, you know, I think there would be a lot of complications related to um, either taking, you know, uh, con- contraception off the table or taking same-sex marriage um, off of the table. And I think part of it is just that the the, the blowback right? To say to all married couples in this country that your state could decide that you can't access birth control, um, I think would have an outsized impact that the court would not be willing to, to carry. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, though, this is, you know, Justice Alito was very clear with us that they don't care what the public thinks, right? That's yeah. not their job to care about public opinion. And so maybe it wouldn't matter. But my concern is that what they've really done is opened up the door to um, one personhood, right, and constitutional personhood, um, and not only constitutional personhood for a fetus, but even earlier, right? Um, so if the if the claim that they are going to continue to push is that states have an interest in uh, potential life from the moment of conception, um, and couple that with the fact that this court and other courts certainly have been willing to allow people who are foes of abortion or contraception um, to basically create their own science. Um, what you know, what you could imagine is a future in which some states say, well, anything that has the potential to keep a fertilized egg from implanting in a uterus is no different than an abortion. Mm-hmm. Um, so your IUD is going to be a problem. Your morning after pills um, are going to be a problem. And so there's a an ability for this to get much more expansive in ways that I think a lot of people just weren't weren't paying attention to before the decision came down. This is mm-hmm. ne- this has never been only about abortion, um, and it certainly isn't only about abortion now. It certainly seems as though if you know states begin to recognize um, legal personhood, a constitutional personhood, beginning at conception, that the area of assisted reproductive technology is um, seriously compromised. Mm-hmm. And uh, there will be a lot of people who decide not to go down that route mm-hmm. um, because of fear that um, they might be, find themselves liable for violating a state law. Can you explain what kind of circumstances would be potentially troublesome? Yeah. Um, so, you know, my my sort of main areas of interest that I teach and write in are abortion and assisted reproduction. Um, and it has long been my position that it is a mistake to think of those two things as being opposite ends of the spectrum, because there are so many ways um, in which they overlap. So I'll just give you a few of those. Um, one is that uh, for people who use in vitro fertilization in order to become pregnant, um, the goal is never to have just enough embryos <laughs> for you to have the number of babies that you want. The goal is always to have extra embryos. And so we've got thousands upon thousands of frozen embryos in this country where typically the rule has been that the people whose whose genes made up those embryos or the people who bought the gametes that made up those embryos get to decide what happens with them. So they can say, 
you know, if we get divorced, then they get destroyed or they get, you know, given to, to research or um, they can be adopted by, <laughs> by other people, but you get to sort of decide what happens to those. So what happens in a state where the state says, well, actually, you know, deciding that you don't want to use those embryos is basically the same as dropping your infant off at a firehouse. Mm-hmm. You've abandoned your children. And why don't we just give those children to other people to raise just as we mm-hmm. would if you had dropped off an infant? So there's that concern. Another concern, of course, is what are the obligations that the healthcare providers now have mm-hmm. um, towards those embryos, right? So what happens when you um, negligently destroy um, somebody's embryos? Um, you know, is that just a civil action? Does it become a criminal action in that context? And that's the thing that we have to worry about. And then the last thing that I'll put on the table here, and, and there are more, but this is one of the other ones that I think is really important. There's a practice in assisted reproduction called selective reduction. Mm-hmm. Um, and the folks who do this work are very careful not to call it an abortion. But essentially what a selective reduction is, if somebody becomes, you know, what I describe as too pregnant, right? Mm-hmm. So you want to have a baby, you didn't want to get pregnant with five or six. And what your reproductive endocrinologist can do is say, okay, you're pregnant with five. Um, we can terminate four of those fetuses um, or embryos, however you want to describe it. And then you'll be pregnant with one. And that's much safer for you as the person who's pregnant. And it's much safer for the baby that you were trying to carry to term. Um So in this world where we are, uh, uh, you know, states are feeling deeply emboldened in terms of how they can legislate, why would you allow a selective reduction to happen if you wouldn't allow an abortion to happen? Mm -hmm. And carrying even twins can be extremely high risk for some women. That's exactly Forget about triplets or quadruplets. Um, You know, one alternative would be for uh, doctors who perform in vitro fertilization uh, to only um, transfer over one embryo, but mm-hmm. that is uh, financially um, undesirable because of the tremendous expenses associated with in vitro fertilization yep. and the you know greater likelihood that one will implant if you actually transfer more than one. Exactly. Um, so there is a, a large financial um, uh, consequence, but then you still would have all of these leftover. That's right embryos that you have to decide what to do with. Exactly. Um, Exactly. Would you envision a state saying that if you create the embryo, you are required to implant it at some point? You know, again, I'm not I'm not willing to take anything off the table at this point. You know, I think about, um, you know, a law in Arizona that was passed um, in response to an embryo dispute that happened there. And typically what courts have said when they're faced with these embryo dispute disputes is and, and you well know this, that, um, you know, the person who doesn't want to become a parent gets to have the veto power. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's usually how courts are going to respond to these issues unless there's a contract that says otherwise. And so what Arizona did was it passed a law that said, um, if there is an embryo dispute, the judge should give the embryos to the person who has the best chance of bringing them to fruition, mm-hmm. right? So putting a thumb on the scales on the side of, again, right, you're, you're abandoning these, these children um, and you should be, somebody should get access to them in order to make babies. So mm-hmm. I'm not sure that they could necessarily or would necessarily require folks to use them themselves. But I certainly could imagine a state that says, well, we're not going to just have these sit here frozen. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are people who want to have babies and, and here are these embryos. Let's let's make it happen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to uh, focus on the issue you talked about sending this issue to the states. Mm-hmm. We get a patchwork of laws and we often have a patchwork of laws. Yep. Um, before cases get to the Supreme Court, and in, in some areas they never get to the Supreme Court. Yeah. So before we had Obergefell, mm-hmm. we had states with different rules on recognition of same-sex marriage. Before we had Loving v. Virginia, we had states with different rules on interracial marriage. Um, and we continue to have states with different rules on divorce, right? Yep. So in before we had divorce reform in the 1970s, people would travel to states like Nevada, who had more liberal laws. Um, even in Loving Virginia, uh, the Loving family traveled to Washington, D.C. to get married and then returned to Virginia and then got run out of town. Right. Um, and certain sex marriage as well. Um, so some people have been arguing, this is going to be state by state. 
so that if you want an abortion, you couldn't go to another state, right? Mm -hmm. um, is that enough? The fact that some states will still recognize and or, you know, proclaiming themselves as a sanctuary or, or, or haven to protect yeah. women. Um, you know, it's only enough if you believe that the only people who should have access to abortion are people who can afford to travel, mm -hmm. um, who have the resources, who have the sophistication, who have the time. Um, you know, so there's it's one thing if you you know, I live in New Jersey, right, uh, 10 minutes outside of Pennsylvania. So let's imagine Pennsylvania is able to, um, you know, make their laws uh, more strict uh, post Dobbs. You know, it's not that hard to get to New Jersey um, um, from where you are. But let's imagine that you're in, in Texas um, where all of the, the clinics are gonna be gone and, and you're in a space where all the states around you yeah. are also gonna have all of no, no clinics. So, so it's not, not just going about, to the border, it's yeah. going across multiple states. Exactly, exactly. And when you think about, so what does that mean in terms of actual cost, right? Do you have a car? Do you have to get on a bus? Do you have to get on a plane? Um, most of the people who have abortions already have children at home. So if you've got kids at home, who's going to take care of your kids? Um, if you have to travel and so it's going to cost you more money, does it mean that you have to wait longer to even go and get your abortion because you're trying to get the money together, in which case the abortion is going to be more expensive? Um, do you have to stay in a hotel? I mean, you could mm -hmm. just go on and on and on. And so there are obviously going to be people who simply cannot leave, who simply can't travel or at least not travel the distance required in order to be able to get an abortion. And then the other thing that I'll add to that is those states that are closest are going to be inundated. So even if you can travel, are you going to be able to find a state where you can get an appointment, right? Yeah. Within within the, the you know, abortions are timely. Um, so are you going to even be able to get somewhere where you can have that abortion and get an appointment? So um, if, if you think that this is a right to which everyone should have access, then having it be patchwork um, guarantees that that is not a right that everyone will have access to. Mm -hmm. So um, more affluent people, middle class people, perhaps, or people also with just more autonomy and freedom yes. in their lives. Because, you know, if you're partner is not interested in you having abortion, it's hard to explain why you went to, I don't know, New Mexico yeah. for several days. Yep. Um, and, um, and, and so that becomes an issue as well. Yeah. Um, you're listening to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM. My name is Tanya Brito, and I'm hosting today's episode. Today, we're talking about reproductive justice and the recent Supreme Court decision overturning Roe v. Wade with co-dean and professor Kim Mutcherson from Rutgers Law School. If you would like to join the conversation, give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. You can also tweet us at WRRT Talk or reach out to us at a public affair on Facebook. Um, Kim, um, you mentioned you heard about the case while you were at this conference. Yeah with uh, other black women law faculty. And, um, um, and and I know that there's been a lot of attention and, and you know a lot about, you know, the differential impact on people based on their race, particularly for black women. Um, we can expect because of income inequality in the United States that black women are gonna experience um, this perhaps more harshly, partly because they, as a group, don't have as much in terms of uh, economic resources as as other races. Um, how else besides the cost and the travel is this going to be affecting Black women differently? Well, I think one of the big things is that you know we already have a maternal mortality crisis in this country. The United States has the highest rate of maternal mortality of any developed nation. Um, and actually it, ha it has been slightly increasing, which is which is really devastating. Um, and for black women, depending upon, you know, what study you're looking at and which, which group of black women you're looking at, um, you know, we are anywhere from two to five times more likely to die um, because of pregnancy or childbirth or, or post childbirth complications um, than are white women. So putting aside 
the things that could happen in terms of not being able to access an abortion or not being able to access a safe abortion, the mere fact that there are hundreds, if not thousands of people, Black women who are going to be forced to stay pregnant um, means that more of us are going to die. Um, and again, depending upon who you talk to, you know, we're talking about, you know, double digit increases, percentage increases in the number of black women who die. Um, and one of the things that we're just not seeing, right, in this flurry of legislation um, is states saying, oh, you know what, we really need to get on that, right? We need to get on our on our maternal mortality numbers. Um, we need to get on our um you know, build up our public education system. Um, we need to make sure that every child has access to adequate nutrition and health, right? All of these things um, that potentially really are about saving lives and, and valuing potential lives. Those are not the things that folks are focused on right now. So um, it is absolutely guaranteed, putting aside any concerns you might have about unsafe abortion, it is absolutely guaranteed that women and Black women in particular will die because of this decision. What's interesting in this area is it's not just a product of um, poverty. Mm -hmm. That the the maternal mortality, it also impacts uh, middle class and more affluent black women. We know from the uh, uh, birth, and I and I, I apologize, I don't recall if it's Serena or Venus Williams who has the had the difficulty at birth and wrote about it. Yes, Serena. Um, yeah, when when my son was born, I had um, I started a hemorrhage, mm. and um, almost fainted while I was holding the baby, mm. and I was in an excellent hospital with good health insurance and a highly qualified doctor, um, and uh, young, much younger. I was in my twenties. I was healthy, um, and so uh, when I heard her story, it really uh, made me reevaluate my experience. You know, um, uh, why are we seeing these tremendous disparities uh, continuing. And uh, people often explain race disparities as, you know, just a reflection of different economic, socioeconomic levels. Um, but we're not seeing that that necessarily bears out. Yeah, that's right. Um, and, and, and um, you know, that, that statistic, right, that, that college-educated um, Black women um, have the same risk of dying in childbirth or after or pregnancy um, or childbirth as a high school-educated um, white woman, right? I mean, there's just a discrepancy that doesn't make sense at all. Um, and what I think is really important, and this is language that I've learned from, you know, um, colleagues often in medicine who are working really hard to make medicine better, um, is that we should not talk about these things as a reflection of bad choices that individuals are making, but we have to see the sort of systemic issues here. So part of that is that we live in a country um, where systemic racism continues to be a problem. And so even if you are a middle class or upper middle class or uh, law school educated black woman, you're still a black woman in a country um, that is pervasively racist and you are dealing with everything that comes from that. Um, you are dealing with a, a medical system where systemic racism continues to be an issue. Um, you know, there's something wrong in a situation where if you're a black woman who is delivering, that you are more likely to have a safe delivery if your physician is also black. Why should that be the case? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so there are lots of things that are embedded in there that are not about you know, people who aren't eating well enough or they're not exercising or all of those good things. And then also think about the ways in which we, um, again, you know, scapegoat individual behavior as opposed to thinking about systems. So we have to think about food deserts. We have to think about, um, you know, employment opportunities or lack thereof, right? Are you working at a job where you're going to be on your feet for nine hours a day, right? Very far into your pregnancy. Um, You know, do you have access to safe housing? Are you living in a place that's a cancer corridor? You know, all of those things are going to impact your ability to have a safe and healthy pregnancy that have nothing to do with the choices that you are making Mm -hmm. um, as a pregnant person. You know, as you're mentioning those, you know, um, uh, conditions that people experience, um, you know, it remind it reminds me of that. You know, although pregnancy is natural and obviously we've been doing it forever, um, it's 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 a serious um, you know condition that women experience, and it can have a lot of um, health consequences yes. during the pregnancy and throughout one's lifetime. 
Um, and some of the language in the Dobbs opinion um, uh, makes it sound like, you know, pregnancy is just this, you know, uh, like it's a cold or something. You just yeah. kind of get through it and it's over. Um, and uh, which, which, which kind of brings me to the point that um, uh, many people have raised that we have, we're going to have a patchwork of state laws. Already we, we see it, right? Some states have very liberal laws. Some states have um, very extreme laws, right? And then we have um, in the middle, right? Some states will have some exceptions from the ban on abortion, um, incest, rape, and um, for the health or the life of the mother. Uh, in the past, how have those exceptions been interpreted and implied? Mm. Um, it's funny. I actually was having a, um, a, a whole Twitter conversation last night specifically um, about this issue and how these kinds of exceptions get applied. Um, you know, and I think what's really important is to recognize that healthcare providers themselves, right, just thinking about the medical exceptions or the life um, exceptions. And I think we'll see life exceptions, not health exceptions, um, you know, where we've got medical providers who are saying, well, I'm, you know, how close to death does my patient have to be, right? I would normally intervene because I know where this is headed, but do I have to wait, right, until this person's at the brink of death um, before I respond? Um, and there was, you know, there was the executive order that came out from the Biden White House. And then just yesterday, there was the clarification of what EMTALA requires. EMTALA is a federal statute, um, for folks who are not law nerds, EMTALA is a federal statute that requires hospitals um, to stabilize patients who show up in an emergency condition. Um, and so, you know, the feds came out and they said, listen, that includes abortion. So even if you're in a state where there's an abortion ban, if it is, if an abortion is what needs to happen in order to stabilize a patient, then that should happen. And I think the problem with that is that if you're somebody who is facing, you know, you're a healthcare provider who is facing a prison term, um, who is facing losing your medical license, um, that that's still that there's still some wiggle room there. Um, and you know, what is it going to look like when the state prosecutes you and you say, no, 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 but I was acting under, under EMTALA. So I think one of the things that we are going to just see so much of over the next months and years, frankly, is just legislation and litigation and then more legislation and then more litigation. Because, um, as I said before, state legislators are feeling very emboldened right now. And one of the things that they are feeling emboldened to do um, is, is to make their own rules, to make their own medicine, to make their own science, to use terms that are, you, know, you think about, you know, partial birth abortion, which is not a medical term. It was a term that was made up by folks who are anti-choice. Uh, so I'm very worried about what that is going to look like. And I'm very worried about the chilling effect that this will have on the kind of medical care that healthcare providers think that they can provide to their patients safely. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Certainly, doctors don't want to be prosecuted um, for providing medical care. Absolutely. Um, the, um, it looks like we have a, a question um, from Terry on Facebook. Um, and uh, the question uh, Terry poses, I just got to zoom up on my chat here. Okay. Um, if you can answer this, um, when does an embryo become a fetus? And when does a fetus heart have ventricles or an independent heartbeat? If you can answer those <laughs> medical questions. <laughs> so I am I am not gonna I am not gonna stand in the stead of somebody who has gone to medical school. I'm not gonna fall into that trap. Um, I will say that um, um, certainly that a, a frozen embryo is nowhere near being a fetus. Um, and I will also say that these you know fetal quote unquote heartbeat bands that we tend to see are often targeted to a point in pregnancy where there may be cardiac activity, mm -hmm. um, but no obstetrician would say that's a heartbeat or mm -hmm. let me say no reputable um, obstetrician would say, well, that's a heartbeat. So, and I would also just sort of go back to what I said before, um, which is, and, and I'll reference the case Hobby Lobby here, which was a case that was decided under, under the Affordable Care Act and the, and the birth control mandate of the Affordable Care Act. 
when we had there was Hobby Lobby saying, well, um, maybe it's not the case that medicine says that these certain types of contraceptions are abortions, but we believe that they are. And if, mm-hmm. we, if our religious belief is that those are abortions, then we should be able to effectuate that in how we provide insurance to our uh, uh, to our um, to our employees. So, mm-hmm. you know, we already have precedent for the court being willing to sign off on scientific or medical beliefs that simply are not accepted within the wider medical community. Mm-hmm. The um, the court's willingness to create new science. Mm-hmm. and to um, uh, write opinions that appear so blatantly politically motivated yeah. using inflammatory language like partial birth and abortionist and things like that. Yep. Um, I want to I want to ask you about, you know, a, a really important issue, and that's the legitimacy of the court mm-hmm. um, and, and our respect for the court. As a law professor, a dean of a law school, you embody sort of the rule of law in a way, right? We all have a certain amount of confidence in our legal system when we make that our life's work. Um, I know as a teacher of family law, I have sometimes to hold my tongue yeah. when we read opinions and we are frustrated uh, by the apparent politics. And I really try to encourage my students not to just throw up your hands and get into a, um, a rant cursing at the top of our lungs and say this is all you know, BS, basically. Um, and there's really no law here. It's it's about politics. So how, going forward, like what, how will you address that in your teaching, in, in the, in your, in your position as the dean of a law school, that our legal system uh, looks to many people to be corrupt? Yeah, I mean, I, that's, that's a really hard question. And it's definitely something that I have been dealing with sort of personally and professionally um, over not even just the last few weeks, right, ever since the Dobbs leak and, and, and even before that, um, is, is hearing from students who are feeling really deeply demoralized, who are trying to figure out why am I in law school when law means nothing? Mm-hmm. You know, it just means who has who has the most power at a, at a given point in time. Um, and, you know, what I go back to really is this sort of larger philosophical conversation that I have with myself <laughs> about this country um, and what this country is capable of. Um, and so, I, you know, I think back to, you know, how it is that somebody like me comes to be here, right, which is that we started off with a constitution that did not countenance my existence in any sort of, um, you know, fair way. Um, uh, I, I was not allowed to vote, right, as a Black person, as a woman. I wasn't even considered to be a citizen, like all of those things, right? Um, and yet here I sit, the dean of a law school. That's an extraordinary shift um, in what our country has done. And so I have to keep reminding myself uh, that there is possibility here, that we have never been the country that we have often professed to be um, on paper, but that there is enormous opportunity, right? It's like when you're doing the job interview and they say, you know, what are the challenges? And you say, I just see them all as opportunities. Well, you know, I think there's enormous opportunity here. And I do think that because what has happened with this court um, and the incredible political manipulations that led to this court looking as it does, right? I mean, let's, let's just sort of talk again about how Justice Barrett got her seat Mm -hmm. um, and Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Gorsuch. We can sort of go through the, uh, through the trio there. Um, But there's reason for us to feel like this is a system that needs to be revamped or thought mm-hmm. about. And I'm not necessarily a person who says we need to pack the court, right? I mean, that's, I think, I think there's some serious ethical questions that we need to have about the folks, about uh, our expectations of the justices. Um, I think that we are absolutely within our rights to call out the hypocrisy that we see. You know, you make one decision on day one and the next day you release a decision that is almost completely opposite in terms of the reasoning that you're using, I think we should be able to call them to task. Um, um, so I think that there, I think there is work that we can do, but I think at the end of the day, and part of this one is a reflection of my, you know, being a, I was a history major in college. And so I think that our historical arc matters a great deal. Um, and then frankly, I've got 
two teenagers at home. I've got a 14-year-old and a 16-year-old, um, and I'm not willing to give up on the world that we are leaving to them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, it's um, the Dobbs case, you know, even putting that aside for, you know, what it is, right? And as you talked about, the hypocrisy and the inconsistency and in reasoning, um, Roe v. Wade was not a perfect opinion. Oh, and yeah. it has been uh, roundly criticized, including from people who are, you know, vehement supporters of a right to, to choose. Um, and you are the editor of a book called Feminist <laughs> Judgments, Reproductive Justice Rewritten. And so um, what, what was wrong you know, when people critique the Roe legal reasoning, um, what was wrong with it? And and what would be uh, a better legal foundation for it, yeah. for a right to privacy to have stood on? Yeah. Um, so I love that question. And um, before I was the editor of a Feminist Judgments volume, I wrote for the, the prior uh, Feminist Judgments volume. And that volume was all about rewriting Supreme Court cases that had gender um, gender implications. And I rewrote Roe versus Wade <laughs> for that volume. So I definitely have ideas um, about how Roe could have been done differently. Um, I think a core issue in Roe versus Wade um, is that the court actually talked a lot about the rights of doctors mm-hmm. um, and a, you know, a woman in conjunction with her doctor, or if a doctor thinks it's the right thing, then obviously a woman should be able um, to make that choice. That is not the language that I used um, in my rewrite of that opinion. Um, I think that the trimester framework and for those who haven't read Roe, um, Roe created, said that there's this right to privacy, that it includes, it, it extends far enough to uh, the right to an abortion. And they said in the first trimester, states cannot regulate at all. It is none of your business in the first trimester. In the second trimester, states can regulate, but only to protect the uh, the health and life of the pregnant woman. Um, and then in the third trimester, states can go as far as to ban abortion, um, but there has, there has to be an exception for the life and the health um, of the pregnant woman. So the trimester framework was always going to be on a collision course, frankly, with science, sure. <laughs> right? Because even, even from 1973 um, to now, viability has has really shifted and so mm-hmm. um and then the court of course in 1992 said let's just throw out the whole trimester framework and let's just focus um on viability so you know i think that there are a lot of things that have been missing in the conversations that the court has had um, about abortion a really strong focus on sex equality mm-hmm. um and recognizing that the issue here yes is about privacy it's about freedom it's about bodily autonomy um, but it's also about what does it take to, in order for you to be um, a woman a person with a uterus but a woman in particular um who is able to make the reproductive decisions that allow you to live the life that you want to live mm-hmm. right it matters very deeply um that whole generation of women have grown up with this expectation of, I don't have to become a mother if I don't want to be a mother. I don't have to take that on. Um, And that is something that I think has never been articulated in the way that I would like to have seen it articulated um, Mm -hmm. by this court. And then the other thing that I think, and this was not so much in Roe, but certainly we saw it coming out um, in Casey, is this assumption that there has to be, that the state has such a deep interest in potential life um, that it can regulate the bodies of people who can potentially carry that life um, to fruition. That's that's a leap, right? When you sort of think about how our legal system is otherwise constructed, um, we don't require people to save other people's lives. I mean, I teach torts. Um, <laughs> and one of the concepts that I have to teach my students is that American law has no duty to rescue. I can be walking past a body of water and it would take me two seconds to pluck out a, ja- a drowning child. And I just to keep I get to just keep going, right? Mm-hmm. That's just not a concept. Um, and yet in this context, suddenly we do have, we do create this obligation for a person to stay pregnant. Um, so I think there are serious issues about equality. There are serious issues about bodily autonomy. And there are serious issues as well um, about race and about how our society is constructed um, that have consistently been if not totally ignored, at least not given the level of importance that I think um, that they should get. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, you know, going back to what we were talking about earlier with Justice Thomas um, and his concurrence, you know, the whole concept of privacy 
within the context of the Constitution, um, if you want to talk about what's unenumerated, all of it is unenumerated, right? Your fundamental right to marry, your fundamental right to the care, custody, and control of your minor children. Mm -hmm. um, you know, those are not things that are laid out in the Constitution. So a lot of this is also about, you know, is our Constitution a living document or does it just sit in the 18th century? And that's how we, we are meant to understand it. Certainly, it, it does seem like, um, as you mentioned, the uh, one of the areas where we've recognized uh, a right is, is this idea of parents' rights to direct the upbringing of their children. And, and those two cases uh, where that was first recognized are really our first substantive due process cases from the 1920s. Um, Pierce Street Society of Sisters and Meyer v. Nebraska, where the court strikes down state laws that either say you can't teach the German language before age 13, and um, people have to send their children to public school. They can't send them to, let's say, a military school or Catholic school. Um, and the court recognizes that uh, parents can make those decisions. They happen to be cases about education, but they um, speak in much broader terms about um, uh, directing the upbringing of one's children. Um, is that another area where you see some uh, uh, potential um, weakening of that right or reconsideration of that right? I think I, I, I would read that in conjunction with the kinds of things that this court um, has been doing when it comes to First Amendment and the um, what we used to think was a separation of church and state, and now I'm not so sure anymore. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, it feels to me like what we're going to see, and especially at this time when we see these things like, you know, Florida's Don't Say Gay Bill, or we see Texas saying that parents can't provide, um, you know, gender-affirming care for their children, um, that what we will see is this, this mis mismatch that some people, in fact, they're right to make decisions not only about their children, but about other people's children sure. gets yes. elevated. Um, whereas for a lot of us, right, so for instance, those of us who are gay parents, right, um, our families are, will not be able to be discussed in certain mm -hmm. classrooms. So um, I, 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 my worry isn't so much that that will dissipate as it that it will be used in conjunction with, um, you know, the right to to exercise your religion um, in ways that really disadvantage communities that have already been deeply disadvantaged in this country. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So we can definitely see more fights over uh, curriculum. In the past, some of those parents, those families, particularly ones that are uh, more fundamentalist in their religious views, would withdraw their children and homeschool them yep. so they could not be exposed to uh, secular values or, you know, magic in Harry Potter right. or something right. like that. Um, but now they are taking over school boards right. and uh, influencing what gets put in the textbooks. Exactly. Uh, things like that. So um, uh, um, I want to uh, remind our listeners that uh, you're listening to A Public Affair on WRT 89.9. My name is Tanya Brito and I'm hosting today's episode. Today we're talking about the Supreme Court's decision overturning Roe v. Wade, the Dobbs case, and reproductive justice more generally. And we're talking with co-dean and professor Kimberly Mutcherson from Rutgers Law School. If you would like to join the conversation, please feel free to give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. You can also tweet us at Wart Talk or reach out to a public affair on Facebook. Um, when I think about the Dobbs case, um, now it is a reversal yeah. in the other direction, and we're we don't we're not used to that happening. Right. right? <laughs> um, we're used to reversals that overturn an earlier decision that did not recognize rights. Right. So exactly. we had um, Bowers v. Hardwick in 1986, and then we have Lawrence v. Texas in 2003. 17 years there. Yeah. Um, what's interesting, though, is in the time period between Bowers v. Hardwick and Lawrence v. Texas, and also in the same-sex marriage cases, um, the advocates bringing those cases intentionally brought them in state courts mm -hmm. often, and they raised their legal claims under state constitutions only, even though they potentially had viable claims under the federal constitution. Yeah. They didn't raise those claims because they wanted to insulate the cases 
from any review by a federal court, which they perceived as potentially being more hostile. Yeah. Um, and we know one of the reasons they did that is because some states have constitutions that grant more rights than the federal constitution does. Some have in them uh, um, provisions about uh, sex equality um, or rights to liberty and privacy in a way that the federal constitution doesn't have that language in there expressly. Um, what can we expect going forward on this issue in state courts? Is there room in states that are banning abortion for there to be successful claims under state constitutions, do you think? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and we're already seeing folks who are who are filing um, um, those pieces of litigation, and so we'll see them we'll see them uh, play themselves out. So we've had um, at least a, a ban or two that has been put on hold um, because of the state constitution. We've got some um, Democratic lawmakers in some states who are saying we're going to go after the ban in our state based on our state constitution. Um, so one thing, you know, if 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 we want to look for any silver linings uh, in the world that we're living in right now. Um, at least a lot of people who had no idea that states had constitutions are now going to understand that all states um, have their own constitutional order um, and the importance of state constitutions. So you, know, you think about how many states have had these, you know, ballot initiatives to amend their constitutions. We've got one pending um, in Pennsylvania right now that's related to abortion. These things matter. These are not small things. It's not all about Congress. It's not all about all about the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, and so, you know, if, you, if you're one of those people who only votes every four years, I beg of you, <laughs> you've got to be paying attention to what's happening on the state level, um, because that is going to be core to what happens in the next several years and across a whole range of different issues. So, you know, it's going to be about is there an is there an is there an equal rights amendment in your state constitution? Is privacy spelled out or has it been um, articulated by your state courts that your state constitution um, protects privacy? Um, you know, who are the people who are sitting in your prosecutor's offices? They're the ones who are going to make decisions about whether they are prosecuting somebody who is suspected to have tried to self-manage an abortion. Um, the judges, right? Again, I'm right across the water from Pennsylvania where your judges are, are, are voted on. Um, those are people who you need to care about. So, um, you know, this is definitely a time to, yes, we need to care about what's happening in Congress, although Congress has been... Um, I was going to use a very negative word, and I'm going to try to scale that back a little bit. Um, Congress has been uh, ineffective in a lot of ways um, over the last several years. Yeah, so I think we definitely need to um, be paying attention to states across the board, um, including our state constitutions and our state legislators as mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. um, uh, a lot of uh, attention is being paid on um, what more uh, Democrats could be doing, yeah. um, and and really a reconsideration of perhaps a certain amount of laxity in the past, being a, a more sort of defensive posture, and maybe needing to do more to shore up rights. Um, uh, do you see that as something that, um, or or maybe I should rephrase the question: um, legally, what more can uh, supporters of abortion do um, in in the legal realm to protect that right so that political swings don't um, have us on a roller coaster, right? Um, going back and forth, depending on who's in office. Yeah, I mean, I think this is an issue where it, it, it is it is hard. Um, so there's the Women's Health Protection Act, which has been voted on by the House. Um, it's never going to pass the Senate. I mean, let me not say never. Um, I, I certainly wouldn't bet my house that it was going to pass the Senate because I like to actually have a place to live. Um, so, you know, we, we're not expecting that to happen, and that would that would codify Roe, so at least make it into a federal statute, which will immediately get challenged. Um, the president could choose to issue um, a public health emergency um, um, around abortion, and that would, one, free up some financial resources, not a lot, but would free up some financial resources and also would allow an expansion of the power to... Um, provide um, the pills for medication abortion across mm -hmm. state lines, which could, which could be huge, frankly, um, in the future that we are uh, being set up for. Um, you know, I think that there is, on one hand, you know, we have our folks who are Democrats who are um, 
sort of more cautious or who are really interested in bipartisanship. And um, I think that the the mistake there is that we are working with a group of people on the right who are about winning. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we are here because folks on the right had a strategy for decades. Yes, they're um, playing the long they, game. <laughs> oh my gosh, super patient, right? Really understanding we need to get, we need to take over state legislators. Um, we need we need judges, right? Think of how many judges Trump appointed, including the Supreme Court justices that we're dealing with now. Um, so, you know, there has to be this sense of one, playing the long game, but also frankly, being willing to play hardball, right? It can't be, it can't simply be, well, we know we're gonna get sued, so let's figure out what else we can do. Well, get sued, let's go mm-hmm. to court, let's have, let's fight it out. Let's let's make people justify um, these decisions that they're making. So, you know, I think that, I think that what we really wanna see is a little bit more um, willingness to, um, to fight the good fight, right? To get in good trouble, as, as uh, Congressman John Lewis used to tell us, um, because right now we're just sort of sitting back. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We only have a minute left, and um, I didn't get a chance to talk with you. Mentioned this uh, uh, abortion through um, uh, medication abortion, um, and uh, briefly, could you just talk about whether or not um, that is going to be a viable workaround? Um, there's a there's a lot a lot of tension to how it's um, less transparent um, and it happens in the privacy of your home. You don't have to uh, travel, et cetera. Yeah, that's right. Um, which is exactly why we see states already trying to make it illegal for people to purchase um, the pills for medication abortion in their jurisdictions or send the pills into their jurisdictions or to criminalize the use of medication abortion um, in in their jurisdictions. Um, You know, medication abortion is in many ways a game changer. It is not gonna fix everything, um, but it's gonna be pretty hard to track every single package that is being sent to somebody in Tennessee or Texas or wherever. Um, And then when you show up at the hospital, let's say that you are that very small percentage of folks who might have um, a complication, they're not necessarily going to know that that's a complication that is from a self-managed abortion as opposed to um, from a miscarriage. So medication abortion is absolutely critical, both in terms of safety, right? It is safer to have an abortion, um, a medication abortion in that first 12 weeks or so. than it is to carry a pregnancy to term and to give birth. Okay. Well, we're going to stop on that point and that and that hopeful point, and we will um, uh, be stockpiling our contraception <laughs> and our uh, medication abortion uh, pills for the end days. Definitely. Um, I, so we're at the end of the show. Thank you, listeners, uh, for uh, listening in. I want to thank uh, Codeine and Professor of Law Kimberly Mutcherson for joining us today. It's been a delight to talk with you. I also want to thank our other team members. Uh, today we've had um, our producer, Rochelle, uh, supporting this and, and organizing our show. News Director, Sholly, and our engineers today are Teresa and Rory. Thank you so much uh, for your work today. Never be recorded with information that would never be reported. Disregard the mainstream.